Coming up on this episode of Inside the Epicenter. I was going to write a novel about a, these terrorists hijacking a plane and flying it into an American city. And it leads in the book, in the narrative, to the fictional American president deciding not only to declare war on radical Islamist cells, but to remove Saddam Hussein from power by name. Mm. And I was finishing that novel on the morning of September 11, 2001. And that brand, if you will, that sense that put me in a position where now Christians and others were curious, what do you think is coming? Why do you think these are happening? And how can we make a difference? Hi, and welcome to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. My name is Carl Muller, and I'm the executive director of the Joshua Fund. And I'm really excited today about our conversation to get up close and personal with Joel Rosenberg himself. Joel, it's really great to have you on with us on the podcast today. Wondered if you could give just a brief introduction as to who you are and who is this Joel Rosenberg behind the epicenter? Well, let's start with the obvious. I'm a failed political consultant. Every political leader, U.S. and Israeli, that I ever worked for lost uh, or got so frustrated with politics that they quit entirely, or some of them did really well years after I was involved with their lives. And and so that's my professional life. As a failed political consultant, then I decided to get out of politics. I went through political detox. I got out. I'm clean. Though, you know, in a presidential year, I usually need a patch. And I started writing political thrillers, right? I figured, all right, obviously I'm no good at actual politics, but maybe I could make things up for a living. And that got me involved in writing about things that I really cared about, which was the threats that we face, both as Americans, as Israelis, as Arabs and others in the Middle East, from the threat from radical Islamism. Mm. Not from Islam broadly, not 1.8 billion Muslims, but a narrow but very dangerous group of people that even Muslims themselves are horrified by. So, and that took me into a world where, in which I was not only writing about, but increasingly getting invited to speak and to meet with people uh, both in Israel and in the Arab Muslim world, uh, traveling all the way from Morocco in the West to Afghanistan in the East. And that was my background. And then came the Joshua Fund. Right. Well, I mean, so much of what you do is a reflection of the things you've written about, you know, the the books that you've written. You've written uh, how many books now? Well, as we take this uh, 15 fiction books, novels, several nonfiction books, most of them about the Middle East, and there's about 5 million copies in print. So that has opened up a lot of doors. What was happening early on, you know, people had no idea who I was. I was a behind the scenes guy. Like I, you know, I wasn't a public figure when I was in politics in Washington, but as the books began to do well, hitting the New York times bestseller list, hitting number one on Amazon and so forth, I got invited to speak at Christian conferences, at churches, at uh, different ministry events. And I would find that I was talking about the themes in the books, which were about radical Islamism and the threats to the United States and Israel, the challenge to Christians in the Middle East and so forth. And at the end, people would say, yeah, 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 that's all fascinating. We want to help. 
I'm like, help what? Help the Christians in the Middle East. How, how, there's obviously, it's, you know, we obviously see you're not just writing fiction. We, there's a war in Iraq. There's a war in Afghanistan. There's a, you know, a war on terror. There's a lot of trauma. What do we do? And I'm like, <laughs> it wasn't that I didn't have an answer, Carl. It's that there were too many answers. Mm. I, I couldn't figure out a way. And I would tell my wife as I came home uh, from these trips, I don't know how to answer that question succinctly. How would you begin to explain the dozens and dozens and dozens of ministries, leaders, projects that are possible to be helped when most of these are not names that anybody has ever heard of in the West and they wouldn't know how to give. And I'm not exactly sure how to tell them to give. There's no website for 98% of these ministries. There's no place to go hit PayPal. So what do we do? Right. And after a lot of prayer, uh, actually, it was not my idea. It wasn't Lynn's. It was uh, some Canadian Christian uh, leaders who asked me to take them to Israel. They wanted to see it for themselves. Mm. And uh, while we were sitting in Jerusalem at a hotel in the executive suite at the end of a, a tour day, they were like, you know what you need to do? You really need to set up a nonprofit organization, hmm. a fund, so you can fund these ministries uh, you know, with your own resources, but also with others that might want to help. And that would be a good idea. I'm like, okay, I should have mentioned that I'm one of the few Jews in America at that time that didn't get the financial gene. <laughs> I'm not your hedge fund manager. I'm not your stockbroker. I'm not your money manager. I'm not your doctor, your lawyer, or your, the head of a movie company. I didn't get the classic Jewish skill sets. I make things up. I don't know how to start a fund. But they said, we do, and we will help you. Just to abbreviate the story, two couples gave significant checks, mm. and there was no place to park the money. <laughs> so a ministry was willing to sort of create a, an account and put it in there till we could set it up. And then when we began to put together a board, the team said, well, what should we call this thing? And in the first novel that I wrote, a book called The Last Jihad, the main character is a guy named John Bennett, and mm. John Bennett is the chief investment strategist for a global hedge fund called, wait for it, the Joshua Fund. <laughs> and I thought, let's just call right. it that. Right. And I, I'd love to tell you it's a much more genius in, <laughs> insight than that, but it's it's not. Well, I love it. I, we're all grateful. I mean, because obviously what the Joshua Fund has been able to do since that time that was 2006 i believe was that right yeah the trip we took of some canadian christian leaders was uh the, the fall november of 2005 mm -hmm. and that's the conversation and by the summer of 06 we had all of our legal paperwork set up and we had uh the account set up and, the, and we were good to go and then the second lebanon war broke out right and suddenly four thousand rockets and missiles were being fired by Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed terror organization in southern Lebanon at Israel. More than a million Israelis had to flee hmm. to the south to get out of missile range or went into bunkers, uh, bomb shelters. And wow. that was August of, uh, of 06. We had just formed the paperwork and, and filed it in, I think, in late June, early July of 06. I happened to have a new novel out, so I was in the media a lot. And, of course, they didn't want to talk about my novel. They wanted to talk about what was really happening, which was fine. And then I would start talking about saying, listen, you know, one of the things we want to do to help is 
we just started this new organization called the Joshua Fund, and we're trying to you know provide humanitarian relief and, and, and just assistance for those who, who are being devastated. And the check started pouring in, mm. and we had to very rapidly begin to build a team that would know how do you handle this because again. <laughs> didn't get the financial gene. And so, you know, I, I was the communicator of the message, but the Lord uh, needed to build a team and he did very beautifully yeah. and very rapidly. Yeah. It's exciting to look back. Uh, you know, I joined the Joshua fund, as you know, earlier this year and to look back on what God did in those early days to set the tone, to set the, the direction of where we're headed now and where we're going and, what God's been able to do with that. It's just been a huge blessing to so many uh, in the region, you know, millions. Well, we could never have imagined what was going to happen. I mean, that was a a novel that was coming out in August, but about a month and a half later, I happened to have a nonfiction book. My first was releasing uh, called Epicenter. Mm -hmm. And Epicenter is the term that I use to describe Israel and her neighbors. Why do I use that term? Obviously, it's a geological term. It has nothing really to do with the Middle East. It's the point on the earth right above where an earthquake begins and where all that energy spreads out from. Sure. And I began to use that term to describe Israel being the absolute sort of dead center of God's plan and purpose from which all these geopolitical economic and spiritual events radiate. In Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5, God speaks of setting Jerusalem at the center of the nations yes, and putting all the rest of the nations around her. And later in Ezekiel 38, he talks about how eventually there'll be this terrible, evil coalition that will come against Israel. Once Israel's been, A, reborn prophetically as a nation, as a sovereign country, B, that Jews are pouring back into the land after centuries of exile, see that Israel is rebuilding the ancient ruins, mm-hmm. and D, that it's beginning to build a level of prosperity that is an envy of its enemies. And in that text in Ezekiel 38, God says, I'm, I've drawn my people back to the, the center of the nations. The Hebrew word is actually the belly button. For the navel, <laughs> the navel of the earth. And right. if you look at those two things, basically God's saying Washington is not the center of the universe. Moscow, London, Beijing, they're not the center of the universe. Jerusalem, Israel, they are the center of the universe as he sees it, which is sort of the only point that matters. And that's not just the geopolitical way he looks at the world. Obviously, in Acts chapter one, Jesus tells his own disciples you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you and, and gives you power. And you'll be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. So from the church perspective, too, Jerusalem, Israel is the epicenter of the whole spiritual revolution of the kingdom that's coming that begins. And it spreads out right. all over the world. And as we know from the rest of Bible prophecy, all roads lead to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the last city ever mentioned in the Bible. Um, and yeah. right, here we are now living there. That was not our plan at the time, but God has put us on this prophetic journey to come back right. uh, as Jews to the land of Israel. And um, so that's been quite a journey. I remember a few years ago walking around Jerusalem and I was in a, in a place, uh, I can't recall exactly where it was, but I saw a motto, I believe it was in Latin, that calls Jerusalem the heart of the world. 
it is the the very center of all of this. And I remember also uh, when your book Epicenter came out, reading it and going, he's got this exactly right, because in so many ways, Israel and her neighbors represent the crux of everything that that happens around the world. You know, we we think about so many things that happen. And they can trace their either religious or geopolitical or economic implications right back to the epicenter, right back to where the focus of the Joshua Fund and the focus of your so much of your work is. Um, and, and it's, but, it's interesting, right, Carl, because, you know, it, look, Daniel, the prophet Daniel describes Israel as the beautiful land. And yeah. I do think it's beautiful. But I've been to the Caribbean. <laughs> You know, I've been to some other places on the earth that are beautiful, right? right? Israel, Jerusalem, this is not the biggest country in the world. It's not the wealthiest country in the world. It doesn't have the highest mountain in the world. Uh, Jerusalem doesn't even have a river. It barely has its own water supply. There's no gold here. There's no silver here. There's no oil here. Uh, Jews have been complaining, uh, you know, for 70 some years. Lord, seriously? <laughs> You promise us a land that has no oil? Why didn't you give us Saudi Arabia? I, I mean, said I gave on, you, I Lord. gave you milk and honey. Come on, gave, yeah, we were like, yeah, that's <laughs> lovely. But um, now we eventually discovered natural gas off the coast. But it is so. You think why? Not just why did God choose it, but why do the rest of the nations hate us? Right. What is the deal with trying to destroy, annihilate, consume, conquer? Israel, you see it time and time and time again, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the, the Greeks, the, the, the Persians, the, the Romans, the Ottomans, uh, the British. Yeah. I mean, good night. It doesn't stop. Hey, Joel, do me a favor. Let's go back to when you burst on the scene uh, in early 2000s. And just tell me what was going through your mind when you saw events line up right around what you had written a few months before. I know the book, The Last Jihad, was an extremely impactful book for me. I I was really captivated by it, uh, as I have seen in so many of your other novels, uh, a sort of insight into things. Tell me, where does that come from, and how did you begin to put all that together? What did you think? So, as I was trying to figure out how to get out of politics... Do something else with my life, and realizing that I have no marketable skills that that we described, and and you know that are classic. And I was like, hmm, I can make things up. That's either being a liar, or there is, you know, as I tell my journalist friends, you know, you can make up fake news. That's fine, but it, you have to own it. <laughs> so the long story short was, I had worked for a number of Israeli leaders and American leaders, but but one of them was for the Prime Minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. Actually, he had been the prime minister from 1996 to 1999. He had lost his reelection. And in the fall of 2000, I got hired by a small group of, uh, with a small group of American consultants to help him put together a comeback Mm. plan. (laughs) I was on the comeback team and uh, we did not help him come back. He didn't come back for nine more years as the prime minister. So, and look, I'm not close to the prime minister. As you and I record this, I haven't had a personal meeting with him in 10 years. Mm. So I don't, I, I just want to be you know, clear. I worked for him for a while. I did some additional projects with him and stayed close to his team in the years that went by, but I don't agree with him on everything. And I, and I don't know him personally really uh, anymore. But one of the things that he had talked about was the threat of radical Islamism, this movement, not of the religion, but taking Islam and 
turning into a political movement and using violence to accomplish political objectives, drive Israel out of the region, drive the Americans out of the region, you know, what happened. So I was, you know, sort of steeping myself in all things Netanyahu because I was one of his media aides, his communication aides, uh, helping him drive his message. And so when that campaign didn't go anywhere, I decided to write a novel. And I thought, you know, I need a what if premise. Yeah. What if something bad happens? That's how, a, yeah, how, how you write a political thriller. And I thought, let me just take an idea from, from him, which is what if what he's been warning about comes true? What if all these types of radical Islamist terrorists that have been attacking Israel all these years, what if they come after the United States in the homeland? So he had actually written about them trying to attack the World Trade Centers again because they had tried in 1993. In theory, looking back in retrospect, Carl, you know, I'm not exactly sure why I didn't be specific about that and decide because I was going to write a novel about a, these terrorists hijacking a plane and flying it into an American city. Wow. Again, if I'd been consistent with what my instinct was, I, I probably should have made it the World Trade Centers. Hmm. I'm glad I did not. I actually did not think of that being specific. And so, you know, the target happens to be Denver, not New York or Washington or Pennsylvania. It's a business jet, not a commercial 777. But all that to say, you know, I started in January of 2001 after the failed Netanyahu effort and began writing the first page puts you in the cockpit of a hijacked jet. Yeah. Hijacked by these terrorists coming in on a kamikaze attack mission into an American city. And it leads in the book, in the narrative, to the fictional American president deciding not only to declare war on radical Islamist cells, but to remove Saddam Hussein from power by name. Mm. And I was finishing that novel on the morning of September 11th, 2001, in our home in Washington, D.C., 15 minutes away from Washington Dulles Airport, where at that moment, Flight 77 was being hijacked, turned around, flown over our home mm. and tragically into the Pentagon. So wow. when the novel eventually came out in the fall of 02, a full year or more had passed from the initial attacks, but there was not yet a war in Iraq. And that was the number one issue dominating all of talk television, all talk radio, the entire globe. Is the United States going to go to war to remove Saddam? Should they? Again, whatever listeners think about whether we should or shouldn't have, don't think that way right now. I'm not making a political point. I'm just telling you because you asked. As a novelist, think of yourself in January of 1941, and you're like, I need a story. I've never written a novel before. I don't know how. But what if, I don't know, let's just say the Imperial Japanese decide to do a sneak attack on America, Mm. and that got us into a war, and we ended up dropping two nuclear weapons on the Imperial Japanese. Mm. You're not saying, I want it to happen. You're not right. predicting it will happen. <laughs> You're thinking, that might make an interesting novel. Right. And then you are finishing it on December 7th, 1941, and suddenly you hear FDR going, this is the date that will you know, Living remain in infamy. Yes. And you're like, good night. So that's what the world climate was like, and that's why the book, bad expression, but exploded onto the scene no one had ever written a novel like this and it had hit right at that moment yeah and that's what began to put me on the new york times bestselling list on amazon on 160 radio and 
television shows in less than 60 days. And that took me from zero to 60 of a new career. Like I just didn't see it coming. I'm I'm not a prophet. I'm not a psychic. I'm not a clairvoyant. I don't call Miss Cleo in the middle of the night to get my, you know, pot ideas. (laughs) Some people are too young listening to this, but Miss Cleo was a psychic that you could call a 900 number and get her to, I remember you know, for a few, few dollars per minute, she would tell you your future. Somehow she didn't see the IRS coming to arrest her for, uh, I think for tax evasion. Didn't see that coming, see that but coming. whatever. So that's what created the sense of Joel seems to have some insight into what's happening in the Middle East, where we're going. And that brand, if you will, that sense that, put me in a position where now Christians and others were curious, what do you think is coming? Why do you think these are happening? And how can we make a difference? Yeah. You know, you live in Jerusalem now, right? I mean, you're you're there right in the epicenter. You moved there a few years ago. Tell me a little bit about your your journey to that place, you know, your background, where you came from, and and how you moved your family from the U.S. to Jerusalem. Uh, how much time did you say you had? <laughs> I've got a, short a podcast version. here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, okay. So the short version is I'm Jewish on my father's side. Mm-hmm. My father's side was Orthodox Jewish that escaped out of Russia uh, during the early years of the 1900s when the Tsar Nicholas II was fomenting all this horrific anti-Semitism known as pogroms. Jews were being raped and murdered and attacked and they're possessions and homes being stolen and so forth. About 60,000 Jews were murdered during that time in Russia. And my grandparents and great-grandparents and all, they escaped. Uh, They escaped in a hay wagon uh, that was clearing a Russian border. Tsarist soldiers took their swords and stuck it into the hay to see if anyone was in there. By God's grace, they got out. Nobody was injured. Nobody said anything. There were a number of children in that hay wagon. They didn't sneeze. They didn't murmur. They didn't... uh, they didn't ask if they could go to the bathroom. They, they all got out. And then they got on a steamship and they made it to the United States. And like any good Jewish family, they set up shop in Brooklyn. And that's where my father and his older brother were born uh, as Orthodox Jews, first generation Americans. They're not from Russia. And um, my mom's side is totally different. My mom's side is English, Methodist, WASP, white, <laughs> Anglo-Saxon, Protestant. Uh, in fact, she's got a few anti-Semites in that background, but on one side. But on the other side, she had circuit-riding, gospel-preaching Methodist missionaries mm. in part of her background a few generations back. Very interesting marriage. We can do my, my actual testimony at some point. But yeah. when they met and married in 1965, they were agnostics by that point. They had these backgrounds, but they didn't really know what they believed. They both came to faith in Jesus as Messiah in 1973. My mom first, Mm -hmm. and then six months later, after studying through the gospel according to Luke, my father miraculously came to faith in Jesus. Now, Carl, you have to understand that my father thought he was the first Jew since the Apostle Paul (laughs) that believed that Jesus is the Messiah. He had never met a Jewish person that believed that. He'd never heard of a Jewish person that believed that. And honestly, in 1973, there weren't that many Jewish people in the world that believed that. A few years later, I was dramatically saved and began to grow. And eventually, I I, I had a chance at Syracuse University to do a six-month study program here in Israel. 
at, at Tel Aviv University. And and getting here, I was like, this is the epicenter. Like I, I didn't grow up in a church that particularly loved Israel. They didn't hate Israel, but they didn't talk about it. They didn't do tours to Israel. They weren't teaching the prophecies. I I don't remember anybody talking about Israel. My even my own parents, yeah, they liked Israel, but they didn't have any great love. They didn't. I didn't grow up learning that. But I just got fascinated with this. And I'll tell you one thing that's interesting. When I was really young, just saved, there was a little girl in our Sunday school class, or my father's Sunday school class, and she was not Jewish, but she kept asking my father, who was teaching the class, hey, you're Jewish, right, Mr. Rosenberg? Yes. You know, what does that mean? What did you do? And did you celebrate the holidays? And eventually she asked, could we celebrate Passover when it comes up? <laughs> and my dad couldn't think of a quick answer, why not? though he hadn't been practicing any of his Jewish traditions forever. So he came home. I was in fifth grade. That was sixth grade. But he came home and, and said over dinner, hey, listen, I'm going to have a Passover Seder next week in my class at church. I'd like you all to come, you know, my, my sister and I, my mom. And I was like, excuse me, a Passover what? He said, you know, a Seder. I said, what's that? He said, you don't know what a Seder is? No, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> He said, uh, he goes, well, you know, the Seder, that's the, that's the ceremony that you do to celebrate Passover. I said, what's Passover? <laughs> said, you don't know what Passover is. I said, that's why I'm asking, what, what is Passover? So he described this, you know, this Jewish holiday, a biblical holiday. And I was like, I said, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You know, remember, I'm only 10 years old, right. fifth grade. I said, wait, wait, wait. How would you know how to lead us through a Passover Seder? And my father said, because I'm Jewish. I said, what? I said, you're Jewish? Does that mean I'm Jewish? How did that never come up? <laughs> and I remember that Seder. I don't remember a lot else about that, you know, being yet, but I remember the Seder. And I remember a couple years later, when I hit seventh grade, that little girl was in the youth group because it was such a small church. There wasn't many kids. And she's like, oh, you're Joel Rosenberg. You're, you're Mr. Rosenberg's son. I said, yeah. And she said, uh, well, hey, uh, that means you're Jewish. I said, apparently. <laughs> and she said, that's so cool. I said, is it? <laughs> and honestly, that one little girl, like, started to convince me maybe this was a thing. Yeah. Now, long story short, and we'll, I know we need to wrap, but think about it this way. The first person we hired on the Joshua Fund was that little girl's father. Wow. The second person we hired was that little girl's mother. Wow. The third person we hired for the Joshua Fund was that little girl's husband, a Jewish follower of Jesus who wow. grew up in my high school. I, I didn't know him. He was a couple years older than me. You know, so we had reconnected years later. And uh, so it's just kind of crazy wow. how God has worked. but. That began to give me this sense something is important about God bringing Jewish people back to the land of Israel, Jewish people into the kingdom of Christ, knowing the Messiah personally. And not everybody gets that. Even my family didn't get that, but yeah. that's a thing. That's like, I need to learn more about that. And Lord, I would love to be involved in that in some way, shape, or form. But, you know, I'm, I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and I'm going to have to have you lead me. Well, Joel, I, I have to tell you, 
I'm thrilled that we get a chance to explore so many of the dimensions of what God is doing through you and through the Joshua Fund and through the amazing things that you're involved in. And your background, your your story just gives us such a, a texture of, of why God has put his hand on you and, and on this uh, ministry that you have there. I mean, I know we want to get into future conversations about, okay, bless Israel, but why the neighbors as well? Uh, I always like to say that those three words in our mission statement at the Joshua Fund, to bless Israel and her neighbors in the name of Jesus, they make all the difference in the way the Joshua Fund is unique and is uniquely placed there. Joel, uh, thank you. We're going to dive deep into what you're doing now, how the Joshua Fund and how your um, ability to have conversations at the highest levels of both government and religious influences in the epicenter are are taking place right now. I'm so much looking forward to this uh, this series of podcasts that we're going to be doing, and, uh, so and just on. just really excited about where God is leading you and He's leading the ministry here. So, thank you for your time. This is a outstanding conversation. Uh, well, my pleasure, Carl. Thank you for asking me, and um, I'm excited. And I know there's a lot of other people out there who they haven't really thought about this much, mm-hmm. and they're starting to think. I think that's a thing. <laughs> I think understanding what's going on in Israel and in the region is a thing. I don't know wh- how to get started. I don't want to read a big book, I, but maybe a podcast is a way. And there's others who are like, no, I know it's a thing. I get it that it's a big deal, but I haven't known how to help. I don't know how to get involved. Mm. And honestly, I'm just learning about the Joshua Fund for the first time. And I'm curious, is that a place that I could be involved prayerfully, financially, practically in some way. And and so I love the fact that podcasts are a good way to get the conversation started. It is. Joel, thank you so much. Uh, getting an insight into who you are and all that you've uh, been able to do is just the beginning. We're going to be going through many of the opportunities that God is bringing to you right now in ministry and the things that the Joshua Fund is doing in the days and weeks ahead. I just really look forward to that. And to everyone listening, I want to thank you for listening to Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg, a podcast of the Joshua Fund. We look forward to having you join us, and we'd love to hear what you think about this podcast and maybe give us some suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us at joshuafund.com or anywhere you get this podcast. Just click on the link and go to joshuafund.com. Again, I'm Carl Muller for Inside the Epicenter with Joel Rosenberg. Thanks for listening. Hello, hello, Quinice Petway here, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. Are you someone who loves to take a deep dive into God's word one verse at a time to explore his will for your life and desire to draw closer to him? If that sounds like you, I'd love to invite you to head over to lifeaudio.com and search your daily Bible verse to tune in and subscribe for daily inspiration, life application and spiritual transformation through the in-depth exploration of God's word.